This morning we're beginning a, beginning a new series of sermons on the book of Jonah. Jonah, frankly, is one of the most unusual books among the Old Testament prophets. First of all, because it's a story. It's narrative. Most of the prophetic books are much more like sermons. They are oracles uh, calling either the people of God to repentance and to action, to faithfulness with God, or they are declaring judgment on those around the people of God for their sins. There is a sermon in Jonah, but as we will see towards the end of our series, it is surprisingly short. More than that, though, what makes this book unique and interesting is that Jonah is a prophet who isn't especially thrilled with his calling. Now, he enjoys, as we will see next week, being a prophet, but it's the specific call that he receives in this book that bears his name that he doesn't want. In fact, he runs from it. God says, go and preach, and he runs, not towards those he's supposed to be preaching to, but in the opposite direction. He runs from his call, not something that you find in any of the other prophetic books in the same way that we see it here. This whole thing is extraordinary, not just in its uniqueness as a prophetic book, but also in its ability to speak to us today. The book of Jonah speaks to the human condition, not just in Jonah's day and in Jonah's life or the life of God's people Israel, but across all cultures and all times to the human condition itself. And so as we read Jonah again and again, what we're going to read about is us. We will see ourselves in him over and over again. Just as Jonah has the idols of his heart revealed so we will have the idols of our heart revealed. In fact, we may even come to a point of hopelessness as we see uh, Calvin was right. Our hearts are an idol factory daily, weekly, yearly, pumping out new things to worship instead of God. And yet in our hopelessness, we will find a God of grace who calls us to himself despite our sin. And so we want to see uh, over the next several weeks through the book of Jonah, this one who would run from grace even while grace was running after him. That's what we're going to see even this morning. But before we begin our series proper, uh, I want to take just a few minutes to lay a kind of foundation because it occurred to me we had this very long series. In fact, uh, it wasn't until I finished and I looked back to see it was exactly two years, although we had some breaks in there, but it was right after Easter uh, in 2009 until Easter, right before Easter uh, 2011, that we were on this long series overviewing the Bible itself. Every week, you remember, we had, many of you remember all too well, we had uh, one book of the Bible we would look at and one key passage. And it occurred to me, several of you started coming while we were in that series. And what many of you have never been exposed to, which is what I had always done for the most part up until that series, and that is preach through entire books of the Bible. And so some of you are uh, maybe even being like uh, my youngest son who said, well, Dad, once you're done with the Bible, then what are you going to preach out of? Well, it's, we're going to stay in the Bible, okay? If I don't, you should fire me. But uh, the question is, uh, why preach two books of the Bible? Uh, that was not the kind of preaching that I grew up with. It was you were in a different book. You never knew where you were going to be until you showed up that day. Uh, and uh, maybe that's the kind of preaching that you have been used to. Uh, so let me just take a few minutes as we begin and explain why uh, I have in the past and why I want to continue to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, even before I get to that, though, let me step one for, step further back and explain 
my understanding and approach to preaching itself because these two things are connected. I preach in a way that uh, some people that some people have termed expositional preaching. And the question is, uh, what does that mean? What, what is expositional preaching? Well, the grammar Greeks, uh, grammar geeks rather like myself will tell you that the word expositional is, is just a, a longer word that comes from the verb to exposit, which means to explain or expound. In other words, a truly expositional message, its only goal is to start with the Bible and to explain what is there, to expound on it, to explain its meaning and apply it to the people listening. Now that seems pretty straightforward, and hopefully every, in that sense, every message would be, every sermon would be expositional. But there are some implications that flow out of that approach to preaching. Namely this, if my desire is to preach the biblical text, then what it means is that I don't begin my sermon preparation with an idea of what I want to say. See the difference? I don't start with what I think. I start with what God says in the book. I don't write up my sermon to go looking for some verses to throw in and pat it up and make it look like it's the right thing to say. Okay, so uh, I start with the text, I start with the Bible, and I ask, what is there, why is it written, what is God trying to say in the text? And it's not a matter of what I want to say, it's a matter of explaining to myself and then to you, this is what God is saying. This is why He put this here in the Bible, this is what He expects us to glean from it. Why is that important? It's important because ultimately God works and speaks through His words, not mine. And if all you're getting is my words, then you're not getting very much in terms of spiritual help. God will not be pleased to be to show up and to speak uh, to us through that. When God speaks, we see throughout the Bible that things happen. Nations rise and fall. His will is fulfilled. Christians are matured. The church is grown and sinners are saved. Therefore, what we really want is God speaking through His word. You don't just want a, a guy up here saying nice platitudes. So again, my basic approach to preaching is start with what the text says and then just explain it. But again, you can do that for any text in the Bible, right? You don't have to preach through books. Even as we just saw the last two years, you can take a, a kind of topical approach and as long as you're faithful in the context, uh, you can still do an expositional message. The question is, why do I preach through books? Well, there are some theological reasons and some practical reasons. First of all, I think it acknowledges the value of all of God's words. A very uh, famous text, as it were, for many Christians, Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So to paraphrase David Platt, let me just say the word all there in the original Greek means all. Okay? When, when Paul says all Scripture, he means all Scripture. That means every line of argument and reasoning from Paul's letter, every parable from Jesus, every poem in the Psalms, every proverb, every line of genealogy is important. It's all Scripture. It's all God's Word. More than that, it's helpful. It's helpful. He says, understood and applied rightly, what do we find? but that we will be taught, we will be rebuked, we will be corrected, and we will be trained in righteousness. So preaching through books acknowledges that all of God's Word is valuable and helpful to us as God's people. But more than that, I actually think it helps us to better understand God's Word. We are tempted to treat the Bible like a magic eight ball. We say, well, I don't know who to marry. There's her name. 
Unfortunately, Melinda's not in there, so I don't know how I came up with that. Uh, but uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, that's how we treat it sometimes. You know, a verse a day keeps the devil away, right? That's kind of how we, we think. But, but the Bible's not written like that. Verses come in the context of sentences, which come in the context of paragraphs, which come in the context of large books, which come in the context of the great sweeping story of the Bible, which we just spent two years trying to unpack and unfold, which will come to a climax tonight, and I hope you come back for that. My whole point is to say you're really only ever going to understand the verses and the bits if you also understand how they fit with the rest of the bits. So we're trying to not just look at the trees, we're trying to see the forest as well. I don't think it's inherently wrong to preach from different books of the Bible each week. I'm just convinced over the long haul, preaching through books is better. You're going to understand the Bible better. You're going to see how it fits together together better. You're going to understand better how to interpret it when you're reading it for yourself. There's many historical examples of preaching through books. Some of the earliest Christians like John Chrysostom and Augustine preached through books, as not to mention the reformers like Calvin, along with many modern preachers whose ministries have borne long-serving fruit in people's lives. And I think that leads us to the last thing, and that is this. There are some practical benefits for the preacher as well. What are the benefits to me as a preacher, and in some sense to you as a congregation? First of all, preaching through books prevents what is sometimes called Saturday night fever. Okay? I, I, I'm not sitting at my desk on Saturday night saying, I need a text, I need a text, I need a text. What am I going to preach from tomorrow? In fact, if you read Spurgeon's autobiography, one of the greatest preachers ever, his approach was not to preach through books. It was, I mean, all over the place. And he says in his autobiography, he would sit on Saturday afternoon and he would come to a text and he would write up an outline. And then he would think, no, that's not what I want to preach on. And he would crumple up and throw it in the trash bag. Uh, And then he would do it over and over and over again. And as one pastor said, he probably threw away more good outlines than I've ever come up with in my whole life. Uh, and, and, And why didn't someone just say, dude, just preach through Ephesians sometime? Uh, but, but he would literally just be beside himself not knowing what to preach. He would go and ask his wife, what should I preach on tomorrow? And she would be like, hey, you're the preacher. You figure it out. You know. Uh, but So preaching the books of the Bible means you just you know. You end it on verse 12. Next week you're going to start with verse 13. It makes it uh, pretty uh, convenient in that sense. But at the same time, it also prevents me from riding hobby horses. All of us have those ideas, those themes, those passions of the Bible that we like more than others. They do, are, for whatever reason, whether it's just interest or curiosity, our, our heart gravitates towards certain themes. And, and frankly, there are some preachers that don't preach the books of the Bible. What you find is about every third or fourth sermon is on that theme, on that topic. And so, uh, you know, again, uh, uh, there's a very famous story told of uh, an old Baptist minister who was preaching from Genesis uh, uh, chapter 3, uh, where the, the fall has occurred, and the verse was, Adam, where, out, where art thou? And uh, his, his points were, were, were something like, uh, where Adam came to be, why God was seeking him, where he was found, and finally a few words on baptism. Obviously, the guy had a, a thing that he liked, right? Uh, but if, if, if I have to preach through all the book, I don't get to ride hobby horses. I don't get to kind of steer the ship and say, well, I really like this. I want to preach on this a lot. No, I have to do what Paul says, and that is preach the whole counsel of God. Along with that, frankly, there are some tough passages in the Bible, and I can't duck them if I'm preaching through books. You know, I, I can't come to a, a passage on homosexuality 
or on divorce or on some hot-button issue in our culture and be like, ah, I'll just skip that. Can't do it because I've done Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and there it is in chapter 11. And if I just skip to 12, you're going to say, hey, wait a second here. What happened to 11? How come he's not preaching on 11? What's there? It may not even be hot button issues. It could just be, frankly, a very difficult text. I remember preaching in, in, in the book of Acts uh, over two years ago. And I, and I hit toward, towards the end in the uh, chapter 21, 22, and I was just like beside myself and saying, what is going on here? How am I supposed to understand this and what Paul is doing? And I actually emailed one of my seminary professors and said, man, all the commentaries disagree. What's going on? And he says, well, John, the commentaries disagree because it's a hard text. Guess what? I couldn't duck it or dodge it. I had to wrestle and struggle and pray and determine to the best of my ability, this is what I think it means, and explain that to you. What does that mean? It means you're going to get better preaching. Because it's not just a quick, these are the things I already know. These are the things I'm going to write down. It's saying, what is in this text? Easy, difficult, somewhere in the middle, and here's what it means for you and for your life. Well, I could go on there and give more, but I want to explain this is why we, we, we preach through books. This is why we start with the text rather than with me. I think this is both honoring to God and helpful to you. And so we'll be doing this for the next several weeks as we go through the book of Jonah, where our attention will be turned now. This morning, we're going to focus on the first three verses of this book. And what we'll see here are really, in kind of seed form, three major themes that will, that will go not just here at the beginning, but really all through the entire book. The, these opening verses lay a foundation for the rest of the story, and not just the story, but also the truth behind the story that God wants us to understand. So follow along as I read, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Even again in these verses, we see the themes that are going to surface as we go through the rest of the book's chapters. All of them point us to the God of the Bible. The, the God who was acting and speaking, not just in the life of Jonah, but even in the life of, uh, of us and our family and our church today. And so we want to see three things about this God. First of all, we want to see His authority. We want to see the authority of God. The authority of God. One of the themes that runs throughout this whole book is this idea of the authority of God, the reality that He stands sovereign in control over all things. And two examples are given specifically here uh, in these verses. The first of all, we see His authority in the calling of His prophet, in the calling of His prophet. The book opens with a familiar phrase, uh, phrase now the word of the Lord came to. Now, it's familiar if you, if you read the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic books, because this is very often how the prophet's ministry begins. And again, the, the prophet is not one who just says whatever he wants. The word of the Lord comes to him, and then he declares it to the nations or to the people of God. Thus, Sinclair Ferguson says this, Jonah belonged to that privileged band of men who had stood in the presence of God and felt the pressure of His will upon their spirits. 
they heard his unmistakable voice telling them what he was about to perform among the nations. To be a prophet of God was indeed a great privilege, but it was also a, also a calling he didn't refuse. Notice what God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. What, what did the Lord not say? Jonah, if you have the time, I really would like you to go on a mission for me. Jonah, if you can work it into your schedule, I have something I would like you to do for me. Jonah, would you mind serving me and being my prophet, not just to my people, but to a pagan people that you would rather not go to? He didn't say any of that, did he? He said, arise and go. In other words, I am in control here, Jonah, not you. You don't get to determine what to preach or when to preach it, or even if you're going to preach, I am the one that calls you. And in fact, what you see are sometimes uh, prophets who are a little shaky about all this. So they're kind of like, uh, me? Uh, are you sure you want me to do that? I mean, Moses, remember him? Back in Exodus, he said, you know, I, I've got this stammer, I've got this stutter, I'm not very eloquent. And what is God's response? I'm God, I made your tongue. If I tell you to go and preach, you're going to do it. And finally he was like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll do it. And we have the prophet Ezekiel, and, and he has he he is turned 30. He's about to enter the priesthood, and God says, no, you've been preparing all your life to be a priest, but guess what? I'm calling you to be a prophet. And he was kind of like, uh, but I'm a priest. And, he, and, and spiritually, he has this vision where God grabs him up by the hair of the head and says, I called you to be my prophet. Now preach for me. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. You have Jeremiah saying, but I'm too young and I don't know what to do. He says, this is why you were a fetus in your mom's womb. I determined you would be my prophet. You'll escape the call of God, okay? He is the one who is in authority over our lives, not just over the big picture, but individually. He is over all of our lives. He is sovereign and has authority over it. But not just in the individuals, not just in the particulars, also in the big picture. We see he has authority as he judges the nations. He is seen as having authority in, judge, in the judging of the nations. You know, one of the assumptions of the ancient peoples was that, well, first of all, you know, every nation had their own gods. Okay, and we'll talk about the, the, the god Dagon that uh, Assyria worshipped, one of their gods. The fish god, ironically enough, as we will see. That's probably not irony, it's probably providence, I think. Um, but what they thought was that the power of that god was limited to the geography in which they were worshipped. So if it was Assyria mainly that worshipped the god Dagon, Dagon was most powerful in and around Assyria. And the real test of a god's strength was if the people invaded another country, would the god be powerful enough to cross the border, as it were, and to defeat that god of that other country? Or would the god of the country being invaded be strong enough to, to strengthen their people, that army, and repel the invasion? So it was very much like geography, okay? Uh, and God says here, look, I am Yahweh the Lord. I'm not bound by geography. I'm not just the God of piddly little Israel. I am the God of the nations. I am the God over everything. I have supreme authority over every so-called God and over every so-called nation and every so-called people because I have made them. And therefore, I stand in authority over them. Not just in determining how things will go, but specifically, specifically authority over them to judge them. What does he say? He says, I have judged you and you have been found evil in my sight. So God is not just an authority over us to tell us where we should go and what we should do, but he is also a moral authority over our lives 
uniquely equipped to pronounce an accurate and just determination of our character. Now, frankly, here's where most of us begin, whether uh, overtly or not, we begin to bristle because we inherently dislike authority. We don't like it when people tell us what to do or where to go or how to dress or anything else. We don't like rules. We rebel against rules. Now, some of that is just human nature, but I think some of that is cultural as well. If you talk to people who come from uh, countries where there are dictators or, you know, uh, even monarchies, they don't have as much a problem of authority uh, and authoritarianism as as we do. I mean, think about how this country uh, began. This is the land of... um, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is the country that began by telling uh, a, a, the king of a powerful empire to go take a hike. Our Constitution's First Amendments were a bill of rights guaranteeing freedoms for its citizenry. Anti-authoritarianism is part of our cultural DNA. I mean, that's, that's who we are as Americans. We, we say we're, we're, we're free, and no one ever take that away from us. And the problem is that spills over when we hear God who says... You are only as free as I let you be. I am the authority over you. And we say, we don't like that, God. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. And yet, here in practice is what the Bible teaches in principle, that God has the rightful authority over all of our lives, even to stand in judgment over us because He has created us. We belong to Him. And because He is completely and perfectly just and holy and wise, He has the right to determine the rightness of our actions, our thoughts, and our desires. And frankly, when we see the judgment that he finds about uh, on Nineveh, when he looks to them and he examines their life and their city and what they do, that declaration, their evil has come before me. Frankly, when he looks at our life, he's not seen anything much better than that. Yes, the details may be different, but the reality is we stand morally capable before God. We are evil in His sight. Because of this very thing, we rebel against Him. We don't want Him to be the authority in our life. We don't want Him to be the God that He says that He is and that He has every right to be. We want to make gods up in our own image. You know, it's interesting. They have these study groups that have for years tried to find out, you know, who the historical Jesus really was. And even if you watch things like the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, they'll talk about, well, there is the Jesus of history and there is the Christ of faith, as if somehow these two things are totally different, that Christianity as religion doesn't believe anything uh, historically accurate. And what's interesting, though, is that uh, there's been probably three or four major studies to say, what did Jesus really say? What did he really do? Where was he really at? And what's interesting is that in each one of those, you know, they'll, they'll kind of color code the New Testament. Well, he, we know he didn't really say that. No, there's no way he said that. Well, he might have said this, you know. But what's interesting is that in every single one of these studies, whatever was culturally popular and on guard and kind of pushing the bounds, Jesus always wound up looking like that every time. You know, so, so in the 60s, when, you know, Revolution and Che Guevara and all these guys are popular, guess what? Jesus comes out looking like the, the revolutionary. What is that? It means we want to make God in our own image. We look in the mirror and we say, oh, I like that as God. Why? Because we don't have to do anything different. If God's just like us, He's not going to ask us to do anything hard. He's not going to tell us we're wrong. It's, it's going to be perfect. And yet that's not who God is. God is not one who is made in our image. We are to be made in His image. 
And therefore, because of our rebellion against him and our refusal to say, no, I don't want to bow the knee to you, God. I don't want to do what you say. I don't want to worship and love you. We deserve judgment. Yet what we see is a God who is not just ready to judge. What we see, both in this text and throughout the book, is a God of grace. We don't just see the authority of God. We secondly see the grace of God. We see the grace of God. God says to Jonah that he should call out against Nineveh. And as we'll see in chapter 4, that means that he is to proclaim his coming judgment because of their sin. He says they are evil. So what's the deal with this city? Well, to begin with, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was, low, it was a city located uh, about 220 miles north of where modern Baghdad sits in Iraq. And this city was not a pleasant place. In fact, the character... Uh, of the city was indicative of the empire itself. It was a place of, uh, of sin and debauchery, of violence and prostitution. Secular sources confirm uh, what the Bible tells us through the prophet Nahum. He writes this, Woe to that bloody city, speaking of Nineveh, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glinting spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. I don't think that's a place you want to go on vacation next year. And God says, not only does He have the authority to judge the city, He has cause. I mean, you look at that and you say, yeah, you know, God's judgment be upon them, right? I mean, n n no place should be bloodthirsty to the point of just endlessly destroying the nations around them, dropping bodies in the streets so that you have to walk over a corpse to go to the grocery store. I mean, it's just no good. It's no good. And yet, and yet in sending the prophet to say judgment is coming, he is actually showing them grace. Now, what is grace? Well, grace is simply getting what we don't deserve to get. It's the handmaiden of mercy, which is not getting what we deserve to get. Nineveh deserves judgment. For all her wickedness and evil, it would have been just for God to pour out His wrath, to, to wipe them out. Yet God sends Jonah to them. He tells them that judgment is coming. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out before it. Explain, your evil has arisen my wrath. But as we will see, this is not just a declaration of coming judgment. This is also an offer of hope. Because if the people of Nineveh, Nineveh come to grips with their evil, if they see that it's not, uh, it's not the, the way of life under the Lord God of Israel and the world, if they will show genuine remorse for their sins and turn away from that lifestyle, trusting the one true God, then judgment will not come. They will be spared. Now, there is something... There's something that persists even to this day, maybe not with the people of this church, but with other people, and it's this idea that somehow God was always mean and angry in the Old Testament, but nice and loving in the New. And even, I mean, famous Bible teachers, you still have this hint of it. And I think part of it's because of these passages like this where God declares His judgment on sin. But we have to understand that God doesn't change. God doesn't, God doesn't change over time. He is who He is perfectly. And so if God is loving and merciful and gracious in the New Testament, then He was like that in the Old Testament. He doesn't change as you flip the page of the Bible or go across the years of time. 
In fact, even way back in the Exodus, the second book of the Bible, when God reveals His goodness in a unique way to Moses, He declares who He is. He says, I am the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is a God of grace even here. It's this grace that runs the whole Bible and the four chapters of Jonah. Interestingly enough, in verse 1, we're told Jonah is the son of Amittai, not surely uh, either his dad or one of his ancestors. And yet, uh, interestingly enough, Amittai means faithfulness. Faithfulness. God is going to be faithful to his character in this book. Though Jonah will will show himself unfaithful to God, unfaithful to his calling, even unfaithful to God's grace, God himself will be faithful, faithful to his word, faithful to his character as one of grace. But all this kind of raises a question, doesn't it? I mean, even in God saying he's going to forgive iniquity and sin, he's going to clear the transgressor, and yet in the very last line he says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Well, if we've committed sin and iniquity, aren't we guilty? How can God say He's going to be just and punish the guilty and He's also going to forgive the guilty? What does that look like? How can He be faithful to His character and say, I'm going to judge evil, I'm going to put a stop to it, I'm going to end it, but then offer to forgive Nineveh if they'll just turn and look to Him and ask for forgiveness? How does that work? How can God really be just? How can He be faithful and consistent in His character? Isn't there a problem here? Of course... If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know the answer is yes, there is a problem. God can't just forgive sins. If my son does something bad, if, if, if he knocks something over and breaks something, I can just forgive him. I can write it off. I can say, I will pay for the thing you've broken and buy another one. There's a sense in which God can't do that. He can't just say, well, don't worry about it. No, he's God. He's, he's, he's just and He's righteous. And when He sees sin because of who He is, it, it must be stamped out. It must be judged. It must be destroyed. Or else He's not a just God. And yet He proves Himself just by both judging sin and forgiving sinners. This is why He sent Jesus Christ. This is what we just celebrated and remembered at the table. God forgives our sin and rebellion, the making of gods in our own image, because though we deserve to have His judgment poured out on us, He sent Christ as our substitute that it might be poured out on Him. And to receive this forgiveness, then what do we do but what Nineveh did, as we will see, and that is renounce their gods and look to Christ in faith, believing He really is the Savior. That that He came to bear the judgment we deserve before God. And that in Him alone we can find forgiveness. God justly condemning sin and yet also graciously forgiving sinners. And yet it is this idea of renouncing the other gods to worship and serve Jesus that we find most difficult. And while this is true of all people, frankly, I think this is most especially true of religious people like most of us. And this is what brings us to the last thing that we see in Jonah and that is this, the patience of God. We've seen the authority of God, we've seen the grace of God, but we will also today and in the coming weeks see the patience of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose 
to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I hate saying the word Tarshish, just so you know, especially that many times. And yet the point is being made, he's told to go to Nineveh, and not just once, not just twice, not just three times, Jonah is determined to go to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of where he was supposed to go. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, and you've read how other prophets respond to God, and you know um, this is not the expected response. This is not just something that happens every day. It's not as if Jonah is just saying, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't really like this mission. Can you tell, send me somewhere else? No, he is saying, uh, you know, forget it. You want me to go east and I'm going west. You want me to, 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 to go and preach and I'm not going to preach at all. In fact, it's not as if I don't want the mission. He says, I don't want you. Isn't that what the text says? He was fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. That's not just the mission. That's the Lord himself. Jonah has said, God, I'm, I'm fed up with you. I don't want to be your prophet. I don't want to be on your mission. I don't want you. I'm out of here. Now, based on what we have already seen of God's authority and God's grace, I think the old plantation song from the 1800s sums it up very nicely when they sing this, Jonah was a fool and as stubborn as a mule. I mean, what is he thinking? I mean, does he really think he's going to run from God? Do you think that's going to be the end of it? He's going to get in the ship and God's going to say, okay, whatever. But more than that, why would he run from God? Why would he run from God? The, am- the answer is simply this. Jonah was fine with God being God as long as he was the God he wanted him to be. Jonah was fine with the Lord being God of his life as long as the Lord was the kind of God he wanted him to be. If you are a Christian, mark that well because, frankly, that's, that's our problem. It's a lot of people's problem. It's, it's all people's problem. But it is, it is especially our problem because we can confess all the right things. We can have genuine faith in Christ. And yet, when, when God does something, we think, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. And we get all bent out of shape and we get irritated and we get bitter. And guess what? We're Jonah all over again. Jonah doesn't want God to be who God is. If you've ever read Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick, you'll know there is this scene where Ishmael, the main character, goes to the whaleman's chapel on a Sunday night and he hears a sermon on Jonah. It's interesting, I've never read Moby Dick before, but there's a whole sermon just right in the book about the book of Jonah and it's very interesting, but one specific point I want to draw to your attention is right from the very beginning where the, 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 the... The chaplain says, this is what Jonah is all about. Listen to what he says. What is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it has a two-stranded lesson. A lesson to us all as sinful men and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. Pilot is his sailor term for pastor. As sinful men, it is a lesson to us all because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally deliverance and joy of Jonah. As with all sinners among men, the sins of this son of Amittai was in his willful disobedience of the command of God. Never mind now what that command was or how conveyed, but it was a command which he found a hard command. But all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, He oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. 
And here's the money quote. If we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. Did you get that? If we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. I mean, I have no idea. I have to read more. Stay tuned for further weeks. But if Melville's not a Christian, he understands sin well. He understands sin well, even the sin of Christians. This is the heart of his sin. It's at the heart of our sin. We want to be God. And if we're going to let God be God and not us, then we have to renounce our own aspirations for control and authority. We have to renounce our wisdom and sense of right and wrong. We have to renounce trying to save ourselves and let Him save us. If we're going to obey God, we have to disobey ourselves. Jonah runs away from the mission at hand because he simply doesn't want to show grace to the Ninevites. That's what it comes down to. And we'll see it very clearly at the end of the book. Though he himself has been shown grace, as well as we will see, he is unwilling to rejoice in God showing that same grace to somebody else. His hatred for Nineveh and their sin and their raw paganism blinds him to the fact that that Israel was not always God's people. God redeemed them and chose them in their paganism to save them and be their God. He showed grace to them. And yet Jonah does not desire it to be shown to anyone else. And yet in all of this, God is patient with Jonah. He doesn't immediately cast him off as a prophet nor brings judgment upon him for his disobedience, though he could have. Instead, he patiently pursues his prophet, showing him grace firsthand again and again so that Jonah's own heart can be changed, that he can not just be the recipient of grace, but he can understand what it means to show grace to others. It's in this that we should have joy because it signals to us that God is going to be patient with us as well. That when God saves us, when He redeems us, when He gives us new life, He calls us to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and He says, He is now your Savior and your Lord. He is your King. We don't immediately get rid of our sin. It it doesn't just... the, The effects of God's judgment hanging over us are gone. The power that it once had over us to enslave us is gone. And we still have a sinful heart. We still have sinful habits. And God begins this slow, patient process of dismantling those things in our life. Of getting down into the very nitty-gritty, sometimes with pain, sometimes in joy, and scrubbing out the idols from our soul. So that our affections, our love, would be for God and God alone. And we would drop all of the fake gods, the pretend gods, the gods we want to make in our own image and trust more. We would drop them by the wayside and find real life and joy and forgiveness with the one true God. This morning we all face the same dilemma as Jonah in one way or another. Either either way we are running from the grace that God offers in the gospel or we are refusing to renounce our sin and our feeble, futile attempts to save ourselves. Or we've embraced the gospel. We've trusted in Jesus, but we are running from a life of grace, implicitly thinking ourselves better than God. 
Either way, the call is the same. We must repent of our idolatry and let God be God. Specifically, let Him be a God of grace. Not only a God of grace who saves sinners through the death and resurrection of His Son in their place, a God of grace who changes people so that they can more and more give up their idols to trust Him as the one true and living God. But a God of grace who takes His people who profess to believe in grace but don't live that way. Therefore, from the beginning of our walk with God and our initial faith in Christ all the way to the very end, we have to, by God's grace, be transformed so that we can say, I'm not God. I'm not good enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not powerful enough to save myself or to make you love me more, O God. Therefore, give me more grace. And when we pray that, let us not run from it like Jonah, but let us embrace it and be changed. Heavenly Father, we are thankful, God, for your word, even in this example that we see in Jonah, which is not one to emulate. It nevertheless stands as a signpost of the one that we should emulate, the the true prophet, your son, who did not run from the task, but willingly embraced going towards sinners. Not just to preach to them, but to die for them and save them. God, many of us here have been the recipients of your saving grace. We have professed our faith, our trust, our allegiance to your son. But God, in the sinfulness of our hearts, we still struggle to let you be God. Father, we pray that you would pour out your grace in our lives in these coming weeks, that you would show us mercy. And as we experience that, as we see that, that, God, we would come to more and more disobey ourselves that we might obey you. God, only you can bring this change in our hearts, and so we ask you to do it. For the sake of your name and the good of your people, in Jesus' name we pray.